0: Let's open to our second Bible reading, and that's Esther chapter 2. So if you've thought ahead, you shouldn't have any trouble finding that. We'll read the whole chapter. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Higai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jaer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him, and won his favour. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh, oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king She asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the Book of the Annals in the presence of the king. Uh, Good morning. Uh,
1: My name is Ollie. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be uh, preaching from God's Word today. So I thought as we begin, uh, we'll come before God in prayer, asking that He might uh, bless us as we do. Uh, So please join with me. Lord, we know that all of Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness, so that we, your church, might be fully equipped for every good work As we come before your word now, we ask that you might do that, that you might equip us and grow us in our love and dependence upon you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What kind of world do we live in? I don't know if you've ever thought about that question before, but it's actually one of the most important questions we can ask. Because to live somewhere, we need to function somewhere, we need to understand what that place is like. And so this is always apparent to me when I go overseas. When you go overseas, things are different. People think in different ways. People act in different ways. And so, uh, for example, the first time Cassie and I went overseas, we got to the airport, and there were these people there that kind of help you with your baggage. And we ended up tipping them, I think about 10 times the amount you're meant to tip them, because we hadn't quite kind of realised how currency worked there yet, what the exchange rate was. Uh, when we went to Japan, we left here in the middle of winter, and so I think we left, and it was about four degrees, so we were in jeans and a jacket and jump and lots and lots of clothes, and we got there, and of course it was the middle of summer, and so it was 30 degrees, and we're walking through this big airport, sweating so much because we're equipped for winter, not for summer, on that, same, um, on that same holiday. We went to an all-you-can-eat-cook-yourself barbecue place, and that was amazing. Um, barbecue and meat is always good. But the problem was the menu was in Japanese. And so we didn't actually know what we were ordering or what we were eating. We were just kind of cooking whatever they brought. So for all we know, we could have eaten giraffe or hippopotamus or some kind of horrendous meat and not even known it. But that's what happens when you don't properly understand what a place is like. And of course, the same thing can happen to people here in Australia, can't it? We've got all sorts of quirks here in Australia that you need to know to, uh, to function well. For example, people who come and live in Australia need to know that yeah, nah, yeah means yes, and yeah, nah, yeah, nah means no. That's just how we function here. Uh, they need to know that Aussies, and particularly Aussie males, show affection by insulting each other. Uh, that's why when John constantly and mercilessly insults me, I take it as a great compliment. I know it's his way of saying, Ollie, I love you. They need to know that when a pandemic hits, apparently Aussie stockpiled toilet paper, uh, not canned goods or medicine or anything useful, but toilet paper. And they need to know about these as well. Do we know what these are? So these are lifesaver flags. So when you're at the beach and you see these, you need to swim between them because the water outside of them is dangerous. See, there's all sorts of quirks, some ways that we function here in Australia that people need to know if they're gonna live here. If they're gonna live here and function well, they need to know these things. And in the same way, if we're gonna live in the world, we need to understand how the world works. We need to know what kind of world is this. See, it's not enough to just know about the city we're in or to know the country we're in. We need to know what the world we're in is like why well so that we can live well so that we can function well so we know why it thinks how it thinks why it acts how it acts why it speaks how it speaks if we're going to live in the world we need to understand the world and so the question then is what kind of world do we live in And the book of Esther actually helps us to wrestle with that question. It helps us to understand what the world is like. It paints uh, quite a bleak picture of the world. It's a world filled with exploitation and with excess, with genocidal hatreds and mass killings. Esther is a dark book that paints a dark picture of a dark world. And we see that right from chapters 1 and 2. Right from 1 and 2, they show us what the world's like. It shows us that this is a godless world where God's people seem powerless and righteousness goes unrewarded. That's the world we live in. I wonder, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt the godlessness of the world? Uh, It comes across quite loudly in Esther because as we heard before in the quiz, the interesting thing about the book of Esther is that God is not mentioned once. I mean, isn't that strange? A book of the Bible that doesn't mention God once. And what that does is it kind of shows us that this world of Esther is so far from God, so distant from God, it seems like a world where God's not welcome. And I wonder whether you've ever felt that about our world, whether you've felt like our world is a world where God's not welcome, it's a godless world. I mean, think about it, what's the best way to put everyone offside at work? Well mention God, talk about God, and instantly it just puts everyone offside because polite social etiquette says you don't talk about God. God's not welcome at work. Or have you noticed what happens when politicians mention that they've got a faith in God? Instantly they'll be mocked online, newspapers and uh, TV news will make fun of them for it. Other politicians will likely use that against them Have you noticed what's happening with Scott Morrison because he's got a faith in God? Anytime a politician kind of pronounces a faith in God, the world scorns them up, mocks them, because God's not welcome in our public discourse. That's also why uh, religious education in schools is under constant attack. It's why there's a constant push to remove the Lord's Prayer from before Parliament. It's why there's such a push back against the Religious Discrimination Bill, a bill that simply seeks to protect Someone's right and ability to worship God. We live in a world that isn't interested in God, that doesn't want God, and that doesn't welcome God. We live in a godless world. This is the world we live in. And so the whole book kind of paints that picture for us. But in particular, chapter one helps us unpack it. And it gives us more details about the godlessness of this world. And what it tells us is that the godlessness is inescapable, it's impressive and it's irrational. That's what we get as we work through chapter 1. And so, though we might not like it, this godless world is inescapable. Have a look at verse 1. This is what happens during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. So, as they said, in the time of Xerxes, or as we heard before, some Bibles might have Ahasuerus, which is just his Hebrew name, and Xerxes is king, and he's king over 127 provinces from India to Kush. This is what the, um, the uh, map of his kingdom looks like. And it was an enormous kingdom, a huge kingdom. It took up almost the whole known world at that time. And so what that shows us is that for the people living in this time, there was no escape. They couldn't get out of it. It went from almost one side of their world to the other. Because, remember, this is a time before cars and before planes and before any kind of fast form of transport. All people could could do was walk or perhaps use a horse. And so if you're in this kingdom, you're stuck in this kingdom. And so as the book starts off, it's trying to show us how vast and inescapable this kingdom is. And isn't that the same for us today? The godless world we live in is inescapable. We can't get out of it. I mean, think about it. Imagine if you're looking around and you're feeling like this world's so godless and you just want to escape it. You're sick of the godlessness here in Surrey Hills and you say, I'm going to head down to Frankston. I'm going to head further out. It'll be better there. But of course, what happens if we get there? Well, it's just as godless there as it is here. So maybe we think to ourselves, oh, it must just be the city. I'm going to head out to the country. So out to Maui we go. But again what happens when we get there well it's just as godless in in the country as it is in the city and so maybe we think oh i'll fly to sydney or to perth maybe it's just melbourne and victoria that's the issue but of course they're just as godless there's here wherever we go we can't escape it whether we're as west as perth or as east as sydney whether we're as north as cairns or south as hobart we can't escape it the godlessness is everywhere This godless world we live in is inescapable. And it's also impressive because did you see what Xerxes does? Have a look at verse 4. For a full 180 days, Xerxes displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. For 180 days, he puts on this wonderful show, showing people this is how impressive I am come and look at me, come and look at my majestic kingdom. And this kind of culminates in then what he does at the end. Have a look at verse 5. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. How incredible is that? He does a seven-day feast. And he invites everyone along. He invites the highest and the lowest, the highest nobleman and general and the lowest cleaner and janitor. Everyone gets to come along and see just how impressive this kingdom is. And it is impressive. As we continue reading down, we hear about the wonders of it. There's beautiful dyed linen hanging everywhere. There's gold and silver couches. Now, I don't know how that would be comfortable. I'm sure it can't be comfortable, but it looks good. There's fine stone a marble pavement. There's countless different wines. There's golden goblets. This is an impressive kingdom. People look at it and they're impressed by the vast wealth they've got, the power they've got. It's a visual demonstration of just how impressive this kingdom is. Have you ever looked around the world and been impressed by it? Wondered at the impressiveness of it? Because it is an impressive world we live in. The world's got all these charismatic speakers, people who can make the world's case so winsomely, Richard Dawkins and Stephen Fry. They've got, the world has got people who can, with the charisma, to convince the masses. And the world, of course, has the powerful and the rich and wealthy people, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, people with such wealth to buy the masses. And the world's got the famous people, people with charisma and influence to influence the masses. People like the Kardashians, who with a single tweet can make or break a whole company. Or what about Louis Fonzie? Um, I don't know if you know him, I wasn't aware of him, but he's a musician. Whose song, Despacito, has been viewed on YouTube 6.6 billion times. It's incredible the influence that some of these people have they say a word and everyone believes them. These are the champions of the world. They're charismatic and wealthy and influential. The world is an impressive world. But have you ever noticed how even though it's impressive, it's also so irrational? Because what we see happen next with Xerxes is just insane. It's just irrational. And so on the last day of the feast, he summons his queen Vashti. Why? Why? Well, presumably, he wants to show off. It's another way of saying, look at my queen. She's the most beautiful queen there is out there. And it's another way for him to show off. But did you see what happens when he summons her? She says, no. She says, no, I'm not coming. And I think there's meant to be a deep irony here. The king, who's in control of 127 provinces, can't even get a single woman to do his bidding. She says, no. And so despite the fact that this king is so powerful, despite the fact his kingdom is inescapable and impressive, he doesn't know what to do. So he consults his wise men and they say to him, she's embarrassed the whole nation. And so then he comes up with this um, completely absurd situation where he's going to issue a statement that says all husbands have to follow, have to obey their wives. I mean, such an irrational thing to do. How on earth is he going to police that? How on earth can anyone police that? I mean, just imagine it. you would have to make a whole new task force, a whole new police force, that wives obey your husband's police force, and imagine them knocking on the door to some hovel in India or down in Sudan and saying, oh, excuse me, uh, we've had some woman trouble up at the palace and we're just here to check that your wife is obeying you. Can you please confirm that this is what's happening? I mean, it's a completely insane situation. I mean, it's so irrational. I mean, you can't execute this, but that's what he does. The whole thing is just kind of wonderfully absurd. It's insanely irrational. Yet that's what the world's like. And we see that today, don't we? We see the irrationalness of the world. We see men competing in women's sporting events under the guise of transgender. We see hospitals claiming to be the champions of the weak and the helpless, while at the same time slaughtering innocent unborn babies. We see freedom of speech, but only if your speech agrees with what we want you to say. We see inclusiveness, but only if you're someone we want to include. See, the world, it's just insanely irrational. And so, thinking back to the question at the start, what kind of world do we live in? Well, Esther shows us we live in a godless world that's inescapable, that's impressive, but it's also so irrational. But more than that, as we continue through Esther, we see how this godless world treats God's people. And what we see is that God's people seem powerless in the face of this world. We see it as the story continues to unfold. And in chapter 2, Xerxes wants a new queen. He's disposed of his old queen, and so he wants a new one. So he decides to hold a beauty pageant to find his next queen. And so I guess it's a little bit like The Bachelor, but with higher stakes. Instead of becoming a C-grade celebrity, they're going to become the queen of the most powerful kingdom on earth. And so all these beautiful women come together. And one of them is a woman named Esther. She's one of God's people. She's a Jew, and she's the cousin of a man named Mordecai. His family had been brought down here in the exile, and Mordecai took Esther in when her uncle, when her dad died, who was Mordecai's uncle, and so they're like family. And did you see in verse seven how it describes Esther? Have a look. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. This is Esther. She's a wonderfully beautiful woman, and she's brought to the palace along with all these other wonderfully beautiful women. Once there, she's put under the care of a man named Hegai and she manages to win his favour. And so he gives her a special treatment. Have a look at verses 8 and 9. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favour. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He gives her the best food there is and the best beauty products they've got make-up and moisturiser and exfoliation stuff. Uh, as I'm sure you can tell, I'm not a beauty products kind of man. But whatever they had in those days, he gave it to her and they helped make her even more beautiful. And so as, she's, as he's giving her this stuff, she goes through a 12-month beautifying process. Six months of oils and myrrhs and six months of perfumes and, perfumes and cosmetics. And so this is incredible, a 12-month beauty process. Uh, Cassie was a bridesmaid at a wedding a few years back and for that she had to get up at uh, 4.30 in the morning. I thought that was a little bit excessive, four hours of beautifying, but this is even more. This is 12 months of beautifying. So imagine how beautiful she is at the end and finally she's done with it and she comes out and she sees the king. She's brought in and the king is pleased with her. He's attracted to her more than any of the other women. Have a look at verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. He makes Esther queen. And we might be tempted to think then that that means she's powerful, that she has a lot of influence. But in all of that, Did you notice how it talks about Esther? Did you notice the picture that it's actually given of Esther? As we look through, we get the feeling that she's actually powerless, that she's not in control. In verse 8, she's taken. In verse 9, she's moved. In verse 15, she says what Haggai tells her to say. In verse 16, she's taken again. In verse 17, the crown is set on her head. And so, notice what links all of those verbs? They're all passive verbs. That is, uh, they're all being done to Esther, not by Esther. Someone else takes her there. Someone else moves her around. Someone else tells her what to say. Someone else sets the crown on her head. Someone else does everything while she passively does what she's told. As we hear the story, we get this picture of Esther. Esther. That she's not actually the one in control how powerless she is that she's simply a pawn in their hands being moved around at the king's will as she's in this godless world she's so powerless and i wonder if you've ever felt like that i wonder if you've ever felt powerless in the face of this godless world as god's people i think this happens quite often We feel powerless when the government makes laws that influence us, that impact on us, and we have no input. We're experiencing this at the moment with the anti-conversion therapy laws, where the government is making laws that will restrict what we can do, and we've got no no recourse. There's nothing we can do. We're powerless. Or what about the way the media portrays Christians? Think about how often you'll see a Christian voice on shows like Q&A, or The Project, or any other news show. I mean, there's barely ever any Christian there, and if they do have a Christian there, often it's an ignorant, uninformed Christian who makes us look so foolish. This is what the media does, it misrepresents us, it tells lies or half-truths about us, and we feel so powerless to do anything back. There's nothing we can do. We can't influence it. See, in this godless world we live in, God's people are so often powerless, So often powerless to do anything back. And in this godless world we live in, we also see that righteousness often goes unrewarded. Mordecai experiences this. He's sitting in his usual spot at the king's gate and he overhears these two guys and they're plotting to kill the king. Have a look at verse 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. I mean, how foolish are these guys? If you're gonna plot to assassinate a king, surely you do it quietly, surely you don't let people overhear. And so this guy's name shouldn't be Big Thun; it should be Big Mouth. I I don't know how it's possible that you could let people overhear, but somehow he does and Mordecai overhears. And so he then tells Esther, who then tells the king. The king obviously investigates it, he finds them, and he executes them, swift and brutal justice. What a great service Mordecai and Esther have done for the king. What a righteous act to save his life. So how do you think they're rewarded? What will the king give them? If you were the king and someone saved your life from an assassination attempt, what would you give them? How would you reward them? A new house? The fastest horse in the land? A never-ending supply of chocolate? Like, how would you reward them if they saved your life? Do you know what Xerxes gives Mordecai? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We don't hear about it here. It's kind of silent either way. But in chapter 6, it expands a bit on this. And so the king can't sleep at that time. And so he gets his history read out to him. And as he does he hears about this part and he says this, he says, what honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? To which his attendant replies, nothing has been done for him. I mean, how stingy is that? Mordecai saved his life and he didn't give him anything. He didn't do anything for him. Mordecai's righteousness went unrewarded. And isn't that so often how our world works? Righteousness is unrewarded. Think of all the good that's been done by God's people in God's name, that's gone unthanked, that's gone unnoticed, that's gone unrewarded. I mean, it's not that we do good or righteous things for the sake of being rewarded, but still it goes unrewarded. Now, for example, I don't know if you know about the Catholic nuns called the Sisters of Charity. They came here, they arrived here in Australia in 1838 and set up a hospital, a free hospital for the poor. They wanted to do a good thing for the poor. They've continued that on, and so now they've opened uh, four public hospitals, seven private hospitals, and 10 aged care facilities. Uh, that's with a total of 2,600 beds and 1,100 aged care spaces. What a great thing, what a righteous thing to do, to care for the poor, to provide health care, What about schools? Uh, 21% of children attend Catholic schools and there's 145 Anglican schools with more than 105,000 students in them. Again, what a great thing to educate people, to inform them and help them in life. There's so many good things that has been done in God's name and yet how does the world respond? How does it react? Well, it responds by scorning God, by mocking God from saying, God, you're not welcome. See, that's the way of this godless world. So often, righteousness goes unrewarded. And so, thinking back to the question at the start, what kind of world do we live in? Well, we live in a godless world where God's people seem powerless and righteousness goes unrewarded. And knowing that, it can be easy to lose heart can be so easy to look around us and to give up to think that what are we to do but the wonderful thing about the book of Esther is it shows us even though God might seem like he's not there in reality he actually is in reality God is there and he's working out his unseen plan because even though God's name is not mentioned once in the book he's still there on every page he's still there behind every event He's still there, in control, when it doesn't seem like it. See, in the book of Esther, when we dig under the surface, we see that God has an unseen plan. And he's working out his unseen plan in the little things. Think of how many coincidences there just happens to be throughout the book. There's the coincidence that the king just happens to to get rid of his queen. There's the coincidence that Esther just happens to be chosen to go to the palace. There's the coincidence that Esther just happens to be chosen above all the other countless beautiful women there. It just happens that Mordecai overhears this plot to kill the king and God will use that later on in the book to bring about his unseen plan. See, throughout the book we constantly see these coincidences that point to the fact that God's actually there working, bringing about his plan. God's also there in the passive verbs with Esther even though we're meant to think that it's the king and others who are controlling Esther and who are directing her, it's actually God. God's there sovereignly moving her about to bring about his unseen plan. See, right throughout the book, we're meant to see that God is actually in control. God is bringing about his plan. And God is always at work. God is always throughout history at work bringing about his unseen plan. And nowhere is this more obvious than with Jesus. Jesus. So it seemed like the priests were in charge when they arrested him. It seemed like the soldiers were in charge when they beat him. It seemed like Pilate was in charge when he condemned him. It seemed like the mob were in charge when they shouted and abused him. Ultimately, it seemed like the devil and his followers were in charge when they killed Jesus. But who was really in charge? Well, God was. God was using it to bring about His unseen plan, His unseen plan of salvation for His people so that any who trust in Jesus, who trust in His unseen plan, might have eternal life. What a plan that was and what a plan that still is. See, God is always at work. He's at work in the time of Esther. He's at work on the cross and through Jesus. And He's at work today, even when it doesn't seem like it. See, even though the world might seem like such a godless place, we know that God is actually at work bringing about His plan. Because while it might not feel like and particularly in the West, did you know how Christianity is going in China? I've got some stats about it. So in China, in 1949, there were 4 million Christians. Do you know how many Christians there are in China today? There's 67 million that means that there's been a growth of Christianity by almost 1 million people per year for the last 60, 70 years. How incredible is that? God is at work, working out His unseen plan. Or what about in Africa? In 1900, there were 9 million Christians. That had jumped by the, to the, year, by the year 2000 to 380 million Christians. And do you know what it's predicted to get to by 2025? predicted that it will get to 630 million. That's 25 times the population of Australia. I mean, how wonderful is that? God is at work bringing about His unseen plan, even though it might not look like it. Even when on the surface we look around and God seems so distant, we're going to remember that God is never distant and God is always at work. And so then to answer our question from the start, what kind of world do we live in? Well, Well, in one sense, it's an extremely godless world. That's not the truth of things. See, even though it might not always look like it, we don't actually live in a godless world. We actually live in God's world because God is always at work bringing about his unseen plan. I'm going to pray and thank God for that. Please pray with me.